Let's get into our reading today in John chapter 15 and 16. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So I've always enjoyed having books around, reading, having like real tangible books, not a Kindle. I've never really gotten into that. And until recently, I haven't even enjoyed audiobooks, but like just having actual books around. But just recently, I have gotten into audiobooks. And by that, I mean I found like two Spotify channels that I enjoy because they have really quality British recordings of some classic titles, and like that, that just holds my attention for hours. But there's one thing that is different between reading a real book and handling an audiobook, and it's a big downside for me, and that is where I stop. Like when I, when I read a book, I always go to the end of a chapter, and, and it's not like a checkbox thing, like, oh, I've read this chapter. It's, it's more just reaching a natural conclusion, if that makes sense. Like I, I have to finish a thought or a sentence or a paragraph and even a full line of thinking. So I finish a chapter before I put it down. And when I'm using audiobooks, at least the ones that I've been listening to, so often I find myself picking up in what feels like the middle of a thought or the middle of a sentence that it becomes irritating and frustrating and then I'm skipping around and then I don't know where I am in the story. And I love these things, but it's been enough of a frustration to make me reconsider the whole practice altogether. Because context matters, right? Could you imagine starting a conversation with someone after our gathering today in the lobby and the two of you are talking and you just stop mid-thought and leave and just go about your day. And then sometime during the week, you run into each other and the other person just picks up like on the next word without skipping a beat as though not a single second had passed. That's like, to me, that sounds maddening. You would, you would never do that. And I think most of us would never read a book like that either. We, we need the context. We need to know where we were, what the situation was, who was speaking, who were they speaking to, what part of the story were we in. All of this context keeps us from a danger, and I think that danger is 
isolating a piece of text and leaving it there on an island and then very likely misunderstanding it. So, with that in mind, what does today's text mean? Because it's been like, what, five, six weeks since we've been in John? So if we look not forward, not backwards, but only at today's text, what are some observations we can gather from it? Because I find that this is one of several passages in Scripture that seems straightforward at first glance, but upon inspection opens into an infinite chasm of questions and implications. Here's what I mean. We're not going to look at anything before it. We're just going to look at this and maybe gather some basic main points. Verses 18 through 20. If Jesus was persecuted, his followers will be persecuted as well. Right? Okay. Verses 21 through 25. The world is guilty of sin. Of the first and greatest sin, in fact, direct opposition to God. All right. And then our last uh, section, because the world opposes God and persecuted Jesus and because his followers will also be persecuted, they're promised the Holy Spirit to aid in what truth and in bearing witness about Jesus as these followers experience persecution. So with that in mind, does this passage mean that persecution is par for the course? And more than that, does it mean that persecution is somehow the sign of someone truly following Jesus? Those are not easy questions, because I find that you can go one of two ways with them. One is, if I am being hated, if I am just, just hated by others, I'm doing something right. However, I think if you've read the gospel accounts and have followed Jesus for more than a week, that doesn't pass the smell test. Like that's just that doesn't quite track. But then the alternative may be if I'm not being actively and vehemently persecuted, am I really following Jesus? And while we're at it, what is persecution? Where do we draw the line between inconvenience, opposition and persecution? And then what role do my own actions and their consequences play in all this? I think these are fair questions especially if the passage is left, as is, on its island, devoid of all context, historical or literary. But that's not where we're going to leave it. Not today. Because I don't think you'd read any other book that way. So we're going to take a member. Um, uh, we're, we'll take a member. We'll take a minute and remember how we got here in John's Gospel. So chapter 15 is right in the middle of what we call the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, these are effectively Jesus' last words to his disciples before his crucifixion. This is the very night that Jesus is arrested. And if you remember so far, John has had a major focus on timing and identity throughout this gospel account. Jesus has never been a victim of circumstances, not once. He has given sign after sign to prove his identity as Messiah, Savior, God incarnate. The water to wine in chapter 2, healing the official son in chapter 4, healing the paralyzed man in chapter 5, feeding the 5,000 and walking on water in chapter 6, healing the blind man in chapter 9, and then raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. John pinpoints these signs. He calls them out and highlights them. 
And these signs run in tandem with several accounts of Jesus' teachings and conversations with everyone from Jewish officials to crowds of followers, even to Samaritans. He has also, at this point, escaped multiple arrests and attempts on his life. Along the way, Jesus and John have mentioned his hour or the hour at least ten times before the upper room discourse. And this climactic speech begins with, the hour had come. So there's no doubt that Jesus knows the importance of this moment. And chapters 13 through 17 in John's gospel are spent recounting these last words. So if this were an audiobook and we were looking for our natural break, it wouldn't come where we are now and it wouldn't come at the beginning of chapter 15 we'd have to move back to chapter 13, where this speech started, and work our way forward. But for sake of time, since we won't read four chapters of John's Gospel right now, we'll just bring to light some of the biggest themes that we've encountered in this discourse, and then work our way from there. If you recall, in chapter 13, Jesus started by washing his disciples' feet, showing an example of service. He gives the disciples a new commandment to love one another, thus showing their affiliation with Jesus. In chapter 14, we find that love for one another will mark the followers of Jesus because he is the way to the Father, the truth about the Father, and the source of true life. Keeping his commandment means loving him. In chapter 15, Jesus says that loving him is abiding in him which produces fruit. Abiding means keeping his commandment, and what is that commandment? It is a call to service and love. On the heels of all that, we pick up in today's passage. So we have service, love, love, service. These themes are repeated for three chapters leading up to today's text. We could also work backwards like this, using the old transitive property, and keeping in mind uh, the new topic of persecution that's introduced in today's passage. So, the world hates those who are not its own. Those who are not its own belong to Christ. Belonging to Christ means bearing fruit. Bearing fruit comes from abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ is done when you keep his commandments, and keeping his commandments means what? Love, service, sacrifice. So our straight flow of logic from beginning to end dictates that the world will naturally oppose those who love, serve, and sacrifice like Jesus did. So this is already starting to point to some of our questions. What is persecution? Is it necessary, unavoidable even, for a Christian? Let's keep those in mind, but before we try and answer them outright, I think it would make sense to unpack our passage a bit more with some of the extra context that we have. Verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the world, or the Greek word cosmos in use here, is a term that refers more to the whole broken order of creation rather than explicitly the humans that inhabit that creation. 
that cosmos hated Jesus because of his way of life, which his followers are expected to grow into. The fractured creation, bent inward on itself, will by its very nature create friction with former members who are now redeemed and made to love others rather than themselves. But I think we would do well to not forget that second part of the equation. As followers of Christ now, we are set at odds with a broken order of creation, but we were once a part of that broken order. Commentator D.A. Carson says it this way, Christ's followers will be hated by the same world because they are associated with the one who is supremely hated and because as they increase in intimacy, love, obedience, and fruitfulness, they will have the same effect on the world as their master. They too will appear alien. So, the world would love you as its own if you were of the world, but let's run a quick thought experiment on that statement before we move on. Is the cosmos doing a great job of loving its own? What I mean is, are we, apart from Christ, able to truly love one another? A true, long-term, sacrificial love that puts another's needs before your own, even when you're completely spent. I assume most of us saw family over the last couple holiday weekends. Anybody have a political discussion or two? Anybody talk about social media usage? And that's just within the confines of our families. What if we pulled up the news or scrolled through social media or grabbed a paper, if those exist? My point is not that people can't care about each other, but that given a long enough timeline, the efficacy of any perceived moral or ethical standard in the human species falters and crumbles when it is not grounded in unchangeable truth. Everyone follows some code of ethics that determines who receives love, care, wrath, justice, whether we know it or not. The Christian claim is that our source of ethics and our example of it lived perfectly come in the form of Jesus. The world would receive us as its own if we were still part of it. But I ask you, is that a preferable option? Verses 20 and 21. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Well, thank you. That is a gift. Something to note here is that discipleship does have a cost. Living like Jesus means serving like Jesus, seeing and loving people like Jesus, and over time, becoming so like him that the world understands you are not like it. Many persecuted Jesus, very few kept his word. In the same way, many will persecute his followers and very few will keep his word. Also, we should notice that Jesus is quoting himself here. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. That was from the beginning of this discourse, and it happened right after he washed the feet of his disciples. So following Jesus takes a great deal of humility, apparently, 
And it does not require social status, but service to one another. Now, I think we can take an introspective look for a moment, and you're going to have to answer this one for yourself, but not out loud. On the topic of persecution, if there has been no discernible change in our lives from before to after we have begun following Jesus, is the common denominator for our persecution still Jesus, or is it us? Let's look at verses 22 through 25. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So here's where things get tricky. Because surely, the world was not sinless before Jesus took on flesh and preached his message of the kingdom, right? No. Instead, I think Jesus here is unpacking what he just said in verse 21. The world's opposition to Jesus' way of life will stem from the world not knowing God. I believe this example also ties in with John's words earlier in chapter 3, as well as his introduction in chapter 1. Listen to this. Though the world was made through him, it did not recognize him. And light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light. So, through the theme of identity, John has made it as plain as he could that Jesus' aim in his miracles was to give signs that point to him as Messiah. How can you see the dead raised and the blind healed? the masses fed, and not consider that these are the powers of the God of Israel. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Quoting Carson again on verses 24 and 5, he says, Whatever pretense the world might have conjured up to justify its evil before the coming of Christ, it has entirely lost now that this sublime revelation from God himself has come. In other words, even if you could block out God's revelation of his glory through the rest of Scripture and of creation itself, you cannot avoid a decision when faced with the person of Jesus. So now they have no excuse for their sin, or perhaps now there is no remaining excuse. Jesus is here. In our, our last paragraph. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. I want to work through the second part of this paragraph before looping back around to verses 26 and 7, because I think that's really a linchpin in these two chapters. So what we have here are some extremely specific examples of the persecution that would be experienced by Jesus' followers in the next few decades, especially around the time of John's writing this gospel at the end of the first century. Being put out of synagogues, 
harassed, and even killed for following Jesus are not symbolic metaphors for persecution. No, these are exactly the things that happened to Christians in the first few centuries of the faith. Christians were expelled from meeting in synagogues and in the temple where communal worship of the true God was practiced for centuries. They were persecuted for living counter to Roman society, refusing to take part in sacrificial meals or religious cults of Rome, which often meant not being able to do business. So these were things that affected one's financial well-being. And then on top of that, they were killed by politicians for not bowing to Caesar or any of the myriad gods in the Roman pantheon. So then the question is, why were these things happening to a group of people who lived like Christ? Why were thousands of Christians burned, crucified, fed to lions, martyred? Jesus' suggestion here is that these things happen because people have not known the Father, nor Him. Whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. They have seen and hated both me and my Father. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So, what Jesus seems to be explaining here is, to me, the natural outcome. Following his incarnation, the world that has been able to ignore its creator for so long will react. The bleeding, groaning creation has had its mortal wound fully exposed. And like an injured animal that doesn't understand the intentions of a good doctor, it is biting at the very hand which can heal it. But... Jesus said, back in verses 26 and 7, I'm not backing down. Also, like a doctor, God refuses to allow his creation to hold him back and decay forever. Jesus has come, bearing witness about what the kingdom is really like, about what ordered creation placed under submission to a real good king looks like. And spoiler alert, it looks a lot like heaven here on earth. Now, despite all the harm and hatred that creation spilled onto Jesus, he will not leave. He's here in the form of the Spirit to continue his witness. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness. So, I think we can make a few more observations now that we've looked at the text twice. First, I do think our flow of logic from Jesus' words in chapter 15 still holds true. But that phrase, if the world hates you, this is not an open call to be hated and then claim it's because of the name of Jesus, right? Those who Jesus spoke about are the ones appointed to bear fruit. And let's follow this again. Those who bear fruit are those who abide. Abiding is keeping Jesus' commandments. And keeping his commandments is doing what? Loving God and loving others. So being mean and playing victim when you face consequences apparently does not get a pass in Jesus' eyes. So what is persecution then? I think we should remember as we read this, Jesus was talking to his disciples in this passage. The people sitting in the room with him. But surely, there are truths here that the Spirit can use to encourage our own journeys as we follow Jesus in the modern world. However, 
in the modern world, especially in our context here in America and in the South, no less, no one's being burned at the stake. We're not in fear that the government is going to burst through these doors and say, that's it, pack it up, you guys can't do this anymore. And I'm not afraid that when I walk into work on a Monday morning that I'll have to sacrifice to some pagan deity to get my paycheck. That's just not the way that these things play out. So I don't want to split hairs. And I'm I'm also careful to hyper-spiritualize an event in my life to find metaphorical persecution. I do think there's a time for that. But instead, what I want to do here is to see the point of Jesus' words. And I think this is where we remember our linchpin, verses 26 and 27. Whether I am experiencing persecution at the hands of the world or enjoying a day full of kingdom moments that sing with the heaven on earth overlap of perfect alignment with my creator, I do nothing apart from the spirit. My faithful witness is not just aided by, but grounded upon the works of the Spirit. And we'll see more of this next week as Jesus explains just what some of that looks like. But throughout my life, I expect that I will begin to look less like myself and more like the one who called me to his service. In doing so, I expect that this world in its current state will appear more alien to me and I to it. But I do not pursue persecution. I pursue love. So here's where I wrap up, because honestly, here's where I make my admission. I avoid conflict. I avoid it like the plague. Seeing as COVID has popped up in our house like four times or more now, I avoid conflict much better than the plague. I've never felt persecuted for anything personally. As a white, middle-class, Christian, American male, I pretty much occupy the largest slice of any socioeconomic pie chart you could put me on. So at this stage in my life, in my journey following Jesus, here's what I take from this passage. One, I am not by my nature a follower of Christ. I existed before as a broken, injured creature. When faced with Christ, I was able to see more clearly just how deep my wound was and also how terrible my efforts at mending it were. I need the Spirit to continue witnessing to me and hopefully through me. But I also expect that at some point, my life will look enough like Christ, my way of living will differ enough from the world's that I may be targeted for persecution. And if that happens, I need the Spirit to help me endure. The Spirit helps me endure in my daily faithfulness, and I expect that He will help me endure persecution if and when it comes. So so that's me, and that may be you. My prayer is that if it is, you share those same convictions, but you may be in a totally different place. You may feel persecuted at this moment. You may run your own situation through our flow of logic and come to the conclusion that yes, you are suffering, and yes, it is persecution. 
brought about because of the name of Jesus on your life, labeling you an alien and a turncoat in the world's rebellion against its king. So what do you do? Endure. How? By the help of the Spirit. By the love and support of your community. By continuing to serve and grow deeper in your likeness to Christ. And if I'm honest, this is the most difficult part of the text for me. It's not pointing out that someone might just be a jerk and what they're experiencing is not persecution, but it's just the effects of being a jerk. That's, that's easy enough. What's difficult is the conclusion that persecution is still possible and is still happening to people because of the work of Jesus. Then, as the conflict-avoiding coward that I am prone to be, saying, you must endure, in humility and silence, showing love and continual sacrifice, we must endure in the face of persecution. As long as our Savior endured, we must endure. That's what's hard about this. But I think if there was ever a time when the phrase, what would Jesus do, was applicable, it would be in the case of religious persecution. Let me be clear, if you feel cheated, hurt, robbed, unfairly treated, you look like a pushover, you're sacrificing for nothing in return, you're being taken advantage of, I believe those things. My heart aches because of those things. And I believe a Christian community is here to help. In fact, if someone suffers a wound, a dark night of the soul, a period of persecution, and they do so alone, I believe we're not a community at all. A word from our friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer here. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive a crisis permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. So we must be willing to love and serve like Christ did, bearing each other's burdens, weeping with those who weep, suffering with those who suffer. And we do that because we are still living in a broken world. Later in this same conversation, Jesus will tell his followers, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And by the way, he says that before being unjustly crucified by said world which is a statement that I think speaks loudly to God's view of victory against evil. So, we suffer and endure and love and serve together. But, I don't believe that we are given the agency to fight God's fight, to take vengeance into our own hands, to grow weary of being the one who is crucified and decide it's our turn to grab the hammer and nails. Because the God of the universe did not. So, I don't know where this leaves you. I'm willing to bet there are a variety of responses to this, to this text. It might be encouraging. 
It might be discouraging, even hurtful. What I ask, humbly, is that we examine our response, our emotions, our own situations, and that we do so in community, not alone. Because certainly one of the main points here, if the Holy Spirit abides in believers, is that we are a community and that no one should suffer alone if one is suffering. I'd like to close in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would continue to make us more like Jesus in our thoughts, words, and actions. I pray that as we continue to seek you, that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would love one another, and that our love would be the sign that tells everyone that we are affiliated with Jesus. I pray that when periods of suffering and persecution come, and if they are present now, that the members of our community would gather around those who are hurt, who are experiencing hurt and persecution, and that we would prevail together with your help, with the Spirit's help. I pray that we would endure as you did. I pray that you would daily remind us of your help and of our calling. Our calling to be with you and to be like you in this world. And in doing so, to show the world what true love, true sacrifice, and true service is. I pray that you help us in this, God knowing with full assurance that you already are. We thank you for this. We praise you. In Jesus' name.